0: I see you. Yeah, you. Flipping through all the podcasts, looking for something different. Tired of those with all the catchy phrases? Or one-size-fits-all quick-fix schemes that never seem to fit? My name is Anthony Hart, and if you are like me, you want more than a moment. We are looking for a movement of groundbreakers and world-changers who are tired of the status quo. Willing to throw it all up to see what sticks. Willing to ask a question before pointing a finger. This is your invitation into a collection of thoughtful ponderings posed to make you think, one-on-one conversations that challenge you with fresh perspective, and roundtable discussions where sparks fly as iron sharpens iron. Intrigued? Pull up a seat. We've been waiting for you. But don't get comfortable. You might be up next. In the Red is now in session. Let's go. We're going to start a series called Altered Living. Altered living. That's A L T A R, apostrophe D. Because I believe once we encounter Christ, our lives can be altered through the altar, if we'll let it. And we just kind of got into it a little bit this morning. So when you get into the Old Testament, there's a lot of discussion about the altar. Uh, building the first temple tabernacle there was a lot of discussion about the altars how they were meant to be built and when we get in the new testament we don't see as much about it there's two reasons for that first in the beginning in the in matthew mark luke and john who is jesus talking to come on huh the disciples the jewish people right The Jewish people who knew the Old Testament. So they didn't need to be retold about the altar. They knew what the purpose of it was. What he was trying to do is expand their knowledge on it, though. Then what we find is when Jesus um, was hung on the cross, when he hung his head, said, it is finished, we find the veil that was hung over the holiest of holies rips, right? So now access to the Holy Spirit to everyone. So from that point on, we really don't see much except for one, two places. Hebrews has a mention of it, and this one we're going to talk about today because I want to connect us to a place of just the building the foundation where this sermon series is going to go, and I don't know how long it'll go, but over the course of this, we're going to talk about some of the altars we have built in our life when we meet Jesus because whether you know it or not, when you meet him, you have already established altars in your life and the hardest thing for you to do will be to realize the altars that you need to tear down or you need to rededicate cuz there's a lot of good people in this world. Do y'all know that? A lot of good people. And if it was all about being good, then they wouldn't need Jesus. So then that invalidates the back portion of this whole Bible. Well, I just think everybody good's going to go to heaven. It's hard for, We say we believe in the Bible, but then we make statements like that because it's hard for us to think that not everybody's going to go. Why? Because we want everybody to go. But the understanding is there has to be something different. Just being good doesn't get you there. It's being God's good. When you connect with him, then he begins to change you and how you act. That's the altered living we're going to talk about over the course of this couple of weeks we're into this. But I want to start today in Acts uh, chapter 17. We're going to read 19 through 31. So if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul was a very devout Jew. When uh, God met him, we find that he was one of the ones that was persecuting the Christians. Um, He was there on site when Stephen was stoned for preaching the gospel of Christ. He actually held the coats of those, which meant he approved of what was going on. There is an approval place of there. See, nothing said in the Jewish community, nothing happens like that that doesn't have merit or value. He didn't have to do it, but because of who he was, the knowledge he had when they brought their coast to him, he stood by approving of that. But then it says that he was out persecuting, going, throwing them in jail, and earlier in Acts, he's going down the Damascus Road, and all of a sudden a bright light blinds him. He can't see, and he has these scales put over his eyes physically. He just takes his side away. And in that moment, Jesus appears to him. This is after Jesus died, after he resurrected, after he went to heaven. Jesus appeared to him and got his attention and sent him on a journey of restoration, of taking all of the knowledge and wisdom that he had of the Old Testament, of the Jewish ways, and positioning him to minister to people like you and me. Like when you look at the disciples, they were specifically called to a group of people. You can watch time and time again uh, as they went out in twos to specific places, there was purpose in where they were sent. Peter was called to the Jews. Now he also ministered to the Gentiles, but there came a moment when Paul had to put him in check. I'm just kind of bouncing around Acts, the, the The church, the first church, right, Uh, Jesus descends, or ascends, and we see the first church beginning to form, our forefathers. And there was a lot of messed up people in there trying to figure it out. Even the ones who knew it had to be put in check, an accountability piece in there. So we find Paul ministering, and he went to travel to a lot of places throughout Europe, um, throughout Asia, and begin to minister in these places But one thing that I want to read to you today uh, finds him in Athens, Greece. So he's there in typical Paul fashion. When you know what you know, and it's in your heart, and I'm telling you, if any of us had had this interaction with Jesus, and we're walking down the road, and all of a sudden we couldn't see, and we have these scales in our eyes, and he tells us to go somewhere, and that person prays for us, and we begin to repent for the things we've done, and the scales just fall off all of a sudden, tell me that wouldn't change how you live your life. So the first thing you have to know is altered living requires a moment of alteration. That's going to set the pace for what we're going to talk about over the couple weeks. Because as we see Paul now in Athens in this space of not Christians, but if you know anything about the Greek people or the Roman people, anybody remember Greek mythology? Man, they had a God for everything, right? I don't know what his name, but I'm pretty sure they had a God of the bowel movement, um, Sorry, um, I just got to get your attention. Because that's how they were. There was a, literally a God for everything. You get a stiff wind, there's a God for that. Rain, there's a God for that. God of war, sure, we'll make that. There was God for literally everything because they had to put a name and a power to something they had no control over, something they didn't understand, so they had to attach it to something. But even in the midst of all that, there was still a level of unknown. How many of you, before you met Jesus, in your life, even in the things you thought you controlled, you had figured out, there was always this piece of unknown that existed just beyond your grasp? Anybody ever feel that way? Okay, so that's what he's walking to. That's the people he's experiencing life with. He's walking around. He's ministering the gospel. They're hungry because that space of unknown is a hunger, whether you know it or not. We don't put that title to it, but that's what it is, a hunger in you, a seeking for something to know more. But most people just stop looking. They just get satisfied with what they know, where they've been, and that's it. it. But there's a lot of people who, if they would just take that next step, the next piece. So what we find in Athens is a group of people in that day and time who were hungry to know everything. They signed titles, names, all that, but there was still this piece. So now we find Paul there in uh, verse, or chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 19. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. It says, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. So if you ever heard uh, Mars Hill, anybody heard Mars Hill? There's a title you hear sometimes in church. that was where this was. So Mars was the god of war. The Areopagus took place on Mars Hill, which is where this council would meet. And this is where a lot of uh, enlightened people would meet, people who thought uh, outside the box. Anybody know about the Awakening period in Europe? There was a lot of people in that enlightenment, and there's the same way in this, the people who are constantly looking for more. So they were an open book, if you would. So now Paul shows up, and he says, they took him and brought him to the area up, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. man. Tell me that's not like God's dream right there. Constantly looking for something new because the moment you find something like him, the moment you find like Paul did, that information, that insight to something that is this powerful, suddenly it opens a lot of doors. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That sounds like a very... Big, like, oh, congratulations, I see that you're religious. So there's two ways you can receive that. First is, wow, I see that you're very looking into this, you have a heart to know more. But religious also meant sarcastically that you're a little, eh. You're not doing it for the right reasons. You're trying to figure it out to show off. But you really don't know what you think you know. You say you know this, but I look at your ways. I see the way you respond. You really don't know. So he begins to connect in this space. I see that you're religious. I want to get your attention. I want to talk about this because I see all that you're doing. Look at all the beautiful temples, all the the idols, all this stuff. This is amazing. I see you're so religious. But he begins to connect with them even more. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So in this space, he finds this altar and all these known gods and all these temples and all these Mars hills, all these places with God's names on them. There's this one little altar in the middle of all this that says to an unknown God. To the one piece that we don't understand, to the one piece we can't put a name on, to that which exists just out what uh, of what we know, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Wow, he just right there attacked every one of their gods. I love what you did with the place, but it's worthless. You've built some really nice places, but this little altar that you put off to the side in the corner is the most valuable piece you have. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Whew. We need to preach that in church some. I don't feel like we hear that enough. I almost feel like we hear the opposite. He doesn't need you to serve. He invites you to serve. We just preached obligated, dedicated, right? You don't need to feel obligated to serve. He wants you dedicated to serve. Why? Because of who he is and who they are and who you are because of it. Nor is he served by human hands, though he's needed anything since... He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. It's a powerful statement right here, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. When do you feel to get through something? when it's dark and you can't see it you know how many people are stuck in their very early in their walk feeling like they got to see it they got to understand it they got to know it before they can take the next step right here he did all this why that they should seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That's the declaration. That's the commitment that when you seek him, when you feel toward him, no matter where you're at, you will find him. He is that confident in himself. If God's confident in anything, it is in him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our baby being, as even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed, indeed his offspring. He's speaking to the Athenians. He's actually talking about their poets. He's not talking about Christian poets, Jewish poets. He's speaking their language. He's connecting them through their own knowledge. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And this is talking about Jesus. So I want to talk to you a little bit today as we get to this altar. We find this altar in the midst of the Athenians, in the midst of all these beautiful sculptures, buildings, all this. We find this one altar, and what Paul is coming to these people in their language, in their terms, is attempting to connect them to the power of this altar. And it's not how it looks. It's not even what it represents But it is the connection to the one real God. So as we talk about altar today, I'm going to go back to the Old Testament some, but I want to connect you to three things. I believe that the altar today represents something. And now, because we're in the New Testament, if you don't know the foundation of what it represented, then you're never going to understand the access that you have today to God. Because that's what happened when Jesus come. It was not to undo all these things, but it was to help us realize that it's bigger than finding him at this one place or this nice, beautiful temple. Because you can go back and look in the Old Testament, right? The tabernacle was, for what they had, was a beautiful place. And it gotten bigger over time as they moved in and they built the, the more substantial buildings. It was a beautiful place, so then we begin to look at like, well, then why did we build a nice, beautiful tabernacle if we didn't need it? Because he wanted you to know that there is beauty in what he wants to do. He wants to take your best first and foremost. Go look at how the temple was made. Did he say, all right, Sandy, I need you to give me this amount of money because I'm going to build the temple. Anybody remember the story of the temple? Does anybody think that's how it went? All right, we got a building fund coming up and... Um, You better bring your money. Joe, I need this amount of money from you. I know what you got. I need this from you. Throw some diamonds in there too. Did God know what they had? Sure. Does God know what you have? Sure. What he did was invite. He told Moses to go tell them to bring. And what did they have when they began to bring? An abundance above and beyond. They actually had more than they needed. So the temple wasn't made To be beautiful, it was made because beauty was given. I want you to think about that today. The invitation for us is the same way for our tabernacle. It doesn't require to be beautiful and bold and gold and all the things. However, when you bring your best, God will make the best. But we spend too many times focusing on all of this, the beauty, the splendor, the grandeur, instead of focusing on the beauty that he's trying to bring through each one of us. But that's where the altar begins. Because we, unlike all this beginning part of the scripture, we didn't understand what the altar was for. If I asked you today what the altar is for, how many of you would say the altar is for repentance? That's why they sacrificed animals. Anybody remember the Old Testament? They sacrificed animals. How many would say the sacrificing of the animals was for repentance? It's okay. That's not true. We're learning here, right? So the altar was actually, they burned animals every year, was a reminder of a promise. Let's take you back a little bit. The children of Israel, anybody remember, they were in Egypt, trapped, cut off, taken into slavery, beginning to lose their identity. And now God sends Moses to go to the people and says, I'm going to take them out of there. And we're going to get to the altar. I promise. I'm going to take them out of there. And Pharaoh's like, no, you're not. You are not taking my workforce from me. I've got a lot of time and energy and I really don't want to do it. And I know my people don't want to build the pyramid. So I'm going to use your people. So I'm not going to let them go. So God says, okay. So he begins to send a whole lot of things. He sends frogs, he sends uh, insects, he sends disease. The last one, he tells the Israelites to go take your first, or the uh, firstborn sheep, right, and kill it and put the blood over the door. And then as a promise to them, what he says is, I want you to remember this. So when you get over to the promised land, continue this every year to remember who I am to you and what I did for you. Y'all with me? So that was the initiation of the altar right there. It wasn't the first time an altar is stated. There was other times, which we'll get to. But it was the moment where the sacrifice officially had a permanent place and the purpose because of that. Now, we, fast forward, are not sacrificing animals, but in order to understand the purpose of the altar, what it is, now it does mean repentance for us because of how it was commissioned for them. First thing I want to tell you is that the the altar is a place of covenant. A place of covenant. What's the most time in, in the world, not Christianity, but in the world that we hear the word altar? Where's the place we always hear altar? Marriage. Meet me at the altar in your white dress. Another day for a white wedding. I don't have a country song. (laughs) The altar is a place of marriage, right? Why is covenant such a hard word for us to understand? Because marriage has been watered down. I want to tell you what covenant means today. Covenant is this, and I want you to hear this first part of this, because this is where we've gone astray, a usually formal, solemn, and binding agreement. I really feel like somebody read that along the way and said, oh, the covenant of the marriage is usually, (laughs) doesn't mean it always has to be. And then, in what we do is when we meet Christ, we have this understanding on the life that we 've lived, what's been given to us. so the only place we 've heard for many of us is the altar where we meet to be married, a place of covenant that's even been tossed around by a pastor or two in our weddings when we were there. it wasn 't really uh, spiritual at the time, but I heard a pastor uh, that was that in the funerals the only place I really heard preaching, and now, all of a sudden i 'm in christ i 'm in church i 'm trying to learn about this Jesus guy And Oh, they use that word covenant again. Well, I kind of know, I can connect now. I got the pieces. I remember marriage. But yeah, I mean, my parents' marriage was shambles. I'm not talking about mine personally, but I'm just in a, a voice that exists out there. I don't know who they are, but this person would say, my, my parents' marriage was shambles, and eh, it really was better that they got a divorce because for all of us, I mean, first and foremost, I get two Christmas presents now every year, so that's good. Um, really, if I get tired of one of them, I can go to the other one. So all in all, it's not bad. That usually really worked out in my favor. And, and now, I actually, as I've grown up and I've gotten married, I've realized, man, it's hard coexisting with somebody, they do not see eye to eye. I love to play golf and I want to do more of it, but they just won't let, you know what? Now I see why it didn't work. I see why my parents didn't get along. She wanted pineapple on her pizza. Who does that? He didn't know how to control the toothpaste. It's everywhere. See how the little things slowly begin to form and it's like if you walk in with yeah, it's usually anything can take you out of a path where you break a covenant. I want to take you back to a place where the altar established a covenant that could not be broken. First place, the altar. We see it in Genesis 12, 7 and 8. You gotta watch the clock. Otherwise, y'all are gonna be stuck here. And then you can all park. Genesis 12, 7 and 8. Place of covenant. This is with Abram. And you hear me talk about this all the time. He, he told Abraham, leave your, leave, leave your father's land. Leave all that you've known behind. I, is this not what marriage is? You're supposed to leave it all, right? Genesis, he said, leave and cleave. Yeah, my men know that. <laughs> I, I get more. He told me to cleave to you. She's like, get up off me. Leave and cleave. This is the statement. This is the connection that God was telling Abraham. I need you to leave the comfort of what you've known, the comfort of what your father has. I'm taking you to a place that I can be your provider. I can be your blessing. I can give you what you need to impact this earth. Bless you. So he tells him, leave, and I will bless you. I will bless you out of you, make a great nation, and all the things. So then when you get down to 12, as we see Abraham leave, as we see him coming out of, he goes into the Canaan land, the promised land, the one where the children of Israel eventually would end up 40 years after Egypt. He goes through that place, and this is where God says, this is where I'm sending your people. It says says um, in, in verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abraham Abram, and said to you, To your offspring, I will give you this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and A on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So in this place right here, we find it, the first is an altar is a place of covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham, promises him, step out where I'm calling you, inviting you to, and I will take care of you. I will give you. God doesn't deal in maybes. That's the world around us. He doesn't deal in usually. God is not a usually God. If he told you to do it, guess what? He'll do it. We just sang that song today, right? We sing those songs, but in our mind, because of the the watered-down marriage, the watered-down covenant definition usually falls into a place. So then when God doesn't do what we want him to do, well, I guess he's just a usual God. No, the problem is he's an unusual God. We've just become usually minded. In this space, he told Abraham, leave. I'm giving this to you. And in that moment, because of the promise received, Abram built an altar right there in remembrance of the promise that God gave him. See, that for us is the very first, the very first initiation into who we are. Why this altar means so much to many of us because if you were in a church and you got called and you had that altar moment, right? The pastor hits you right in the feels. Ooh, how did he know? How did he know I was struggling with that? Maybe some of us ran to the altar, right? Is that any of you sloppy crying? It's okay. We don't sloppy cry enough in church anymore. Sometimes you just got to. I got to leave some stuff there. The fear, the anxiety. Can you remember the fear? You Can just think the fear of anxiety going through Abram in this moment? But in that place of altar, because of a commitment to him, he put a stamp in the ground. He put a space there that said, I will remember this moment. I got to. If God promised this to me, then I will remember this. Now let's watch the impact of this altar, this place in, in the dirt. It's just a physical place, right? It's not a great big building. It's just a place that Abram said, this I declare is where I made this covenant with him. I made this co- or God made this commitment to me. Now when we flash forward a little bit in Genesis, we find something very special that occurs in Genesis 35, 1 and 7. So Abram had Isaac, his son. Isaac had two boys, Jacob and Esau. Who? That's a whole whole other story. If you want to know the days of our life, go read Genesis about Jacob and Esau. It's a mess. But we find Jacob running from Esau, and eventually he gets restored and, and is coming back to him. And Jacob, over the course of marrying two wives, yeah, that's fun too, God bless us not having to marry two wives anymore. It's hard enough to be husband to one. I, I, I just couldn't handle it. She's more than enough woman for me. I had to bring that around real quick, right? <laughs> but we find Jacob who's gone away, run away, has gone through a whole lot in his life and has developed a family of, of wives and Kids and servants, and all the things, but now he's going back, he's going back to his purpose, his calling. And it says in verse or chapter 35, verse 1 through 7 God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel. Where did Abram, his grandfather, make his altar? In Bethel. So, an altar was established, a place was given importance, a connection to God. So in this moment, Jacob knows if I have to reconnect with God, and not only do I have to reconnect with God, I need to get all my family to reconnect with God, where would I go? Well, I'm going to go back to the place that my grandfather got the promise, got the connection, got the commitment. If there's one place I know, it's that place at the altar where he said, this is it. So Rise up, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Because this is also when Jacob left the first time where he wrestled with God. See, there's moments in life where altars have been placed. There are impact moments with God. What did Jacob also see when he fell asleep there? Angels ascending and descending. See, this was a place of covenant. Is not just God, I'll make a deal with you. This is God's open access to earth. Covenant is exactly that. When he makes the commitment to you, makes the covenant to you, what he's doing is giving you access to heaven into the earth. What does Jesus pray in in his prayer? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the commitment, the covenant he's given to you to be an access point from heaven into earth. That's that altar place. So he tells Jacob to go to that building altar, and he goes back to that space, brings all of his family and restores covenant in him. See, for some of us today, that initial place of an altar. Can you imagine if I told you right now, especially those of you may have got saved when you were early, you got to go back to that altar? How many of those churches are still like would even still be around? Anybody been in, get saved in church? It's not here anymore. It's gone. I can remember where I got saved. I just have to go home to my. Um, Not my dad's church, it was a church before that. But what happened the moment Jesus came is you don't have to go back to the physical place of the altar anymore. But you need to understand the importance that occurred there. When the altar, when the veil was torn, when Jesus said, you know what? I'm not making this so much a physical thing anymore, I'm making this a spiritual thing. But we have lost the concept of going back to the spiritual altar in our lives because we don't see the correlation to the physical altar in the Old Testament. Well, usually I go to the altar, but I don't really know that I need to anymore. It's not to put any merit on this step or this step, or if you really go in that third step, that's where whew, you just get on, lay on it. If you make it all the way to the third step, there is a healthy dose of the Holy Spirit right there. Not true. Whatever I say, my watch is telling me, who is Siri? What do you know about the third step? Now she's really talking to me. Get thee behind me, Satan! What God is really trying to do in your life, though, is establish this altar posture, this altar position. I have made covenant with you. I have positioned you to be an access point from heaven to here. But in order to do that, I need you to maintain the posture of an altar, not go back and seek the physical space of an altar. But how many of you know there come seasons in your life where your posture has to be one that runs you to this place? You got to go. Why? Because I've held on to it. I've got to physically walk this journey out. I've got to physically lay this thing down. I've got to physically disconnect from it. I've got to give an action. How do you know that? The Holy Spirit's going to tell you. Yvette, does the Holy Spirit just push you sometimes? Like, you better go do it. We were in prayer one Saturday, and she comes in, she goes, God told me to do this. I'm going to go do it. And we're like, okay. Like, there's moments that you'll feel it in your spirit. I've got to do this. I've got to take this. There's an act or a response that's required of you. When you know that you have a God that is not usually God, He is always God. And he's always made that covenant. When you repent, when you give your life to him, there is a commitment level that's required in that place. That's the purpose of that altar. It's a place of covenant, a place of commitment. It's not just a place you come up, say a couple words, feel good about yourself, go back to your seat. Because when you still struggle, that's because you didn't commit. And a covenant, a commitment requires both sides to commit, right? That's the connection. There's a whole lot of people who didn't really commit and wonder why God's not committed to them. Guess what? If both parties don't sign the marriage license, it don't matter if the pastor signs it or not. It requires your commitment, your covenant. That's the shift between obligated and dedicated. I have to do this. The second thing is, it is a place of consecration. That's a very superscriptural word, right? Consecration. Consecration means this, to make or declare sacred, to devote to a purpose with or as if with deep solemnity or dedication. This is what we find right here at Bethel when Jacob took his whole family back. He was consecrating everything. Now, this is the other piece of the Old Testament, right? The man did it all for the family. But now, all of us are required to take our own personal journey. The men did a lot of things for the family in the Old Testament days. The men would take the sacrifice, the family would go, but it was the man's job. But it is a requirement for all of us to understand it is our own personal journeys. Even though you're married, like, well, you can go to church for me. You can go. No, it is a requirement. We all need this thing. It is a personal commitment for every one of us to be consecrated, to be put in that place of purpose. In Genesis 8, 29 and 1 We find the first altar referenced here in the Word. Now, we, if you go back and look at Cain and Abel, it talks about them giving an offering. But in Genesis eight twenty, we find Noah just coming back off the ark. After the flood, it subsided. He steps off and it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What do we find again at the altar from God? Promise. Promise. Noah coming off the altar, all that God had done. He saved him, saved the animal, he did what he said he was going to do in that moment in order to put a place, a stamp in time, a place in earth to put right here, I will I have to make an altar. I have to thank God. There's a moment of praise in this that is very connected to the altar that we find in the temple, the altar of incense when we offered up that praise of incense. This is Noah offering up the clean animals that he held on to, the the animals that that God didn't kill. Now, I can only imagine there had to be some babies born on the ark. Otherwise, there was just some animals that aren't with us anymore. But he gave up clean animals, these ones that, that God saved, as a sacrifice because of God's promise and because of that praise that was lifted up, because of that scent, that aroma of a perfect sacrifice of it, these ones that were saved. Then we see God continue this covenant, expand it, promote it, give them a promise that I will never again do what I did before. You know, you gotta be careful because that's a powerful scripture. Every time we see a natural disaster hit, you got a handful of people like God did that. I'm just gonna leave that there for you. It's a place of consecration, a place of praise. The last piece that I want to give you is this, and this gets us back to what we initially were talking about as now in the New Testament, it is a place of repentance. It's a place of covenant first, a promise, it is our identity. A place of consecration, it is a place of relationship. It's where we get closer to him. As we begin to walk more in our purpose, we begin to lay some things down. But where does that start? It starts at a place of connection or repentance. You get to Isaiah 66. We're going to read verse 2 through 4. Then I'm going to close this thing down. Isaiah 66, 2 through 4. This is Isaiah 66 giving a prophetic word to the children of Israel from God. They've been in exile. There's just been, the children of Israel have become a mess. They're out here sowing their wild oats, doing whatever. But God is attempting to restore their heart right here. And he says, 66, two through four. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. See, when he meets us for the first time, we weren't raised in church. We were out here sowing our wild, wild oats, doing all these things. He didn't find us in this place of humble humility. It's not given to us in the world around us. Even broken models of humility is not humility. You understand that? There's people out there like, oh, you're humble. You're not humble. Some people are just broken. And it looks like humility, but it's not really humility. It's easy to be humble when you ain't got nothing, amen? But there's a shift that has to happen in us. But this is people who should know better. This is what he expects of them. He wants them to be humble, contrite in spirit. Contrite means feeling or showing sorrow and remorse for improper or objectionable behavior. Remorse is a gnawing distress arising from a sense of guilt. What he's saying is, I need you to be humble and repentant in spirit and trembles at my word. We just talked last week about the fear of God, right? That awe and that reverence. When that's your position. So when he invites you into a place of repentance, this is what he's saying. You who don't know me, you who don't know this Old Testament, you who've never studied this, this is your posture I'm trying to get. This is where it occurs at the altar. How do we know that? He references the altar right after that. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood, he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered; when I spoke, when I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. See, he's talking to people who knew him and he's telling them in this space, they are doing what they've been called to do. They're giving an offering, but because their heart's not postured in humility, in repentance, and in fear of him, he said, you might as well have committed a sin because it means nothing to me. You can take your ox. I don't care how big it is, how good it looks, how, man, this is the best one I've had in years. It does not matter. You might as well have murdered somebody. He's connecting it to sin. The purpose of your sacrifice, the purpose of your altar is not about what you bring. It's how you bring it. This was who Jesus was in every sense of the word. He came to speak to a people who had gotten so good at doing what they did that it didn't matter how they did it. And then he comes to us. He said, if these people ain't going to get it right, the people who should know better, the people I've told right there what's required... Well, I got a background. I got a backup shot. I got a group of people that have never had access to this, but you know what? I think those are the people that will change the world. What's it going to require? An altar. Because I need you to be humble. You know, the altar that we talk about now. Back in the day, it was an altar. You, what we think of is where you go up and take the animals. But the altars before that were altars of praise and worship. They weren't built in high places. There's actually, a, in Exodus, when he's talking about building the altars, he said, don't build it up. You don't want people to see your nakedness. You didn't wear underwear underneath your your." Your wardrobes, right? As you walked up, there was, and you knelt down. They didn't want any humility or shame in there. Because they're places designed for you to humble yourself. This is not a humble posture, but this one is. you to be humble, it requires you to be contrite in spirit. It requires a place of repentance because regardless of how good you were, maybe you were born and raised in church like me, but there came a moment where I realized I had to repent of some things. Even the things that I'd got good at doing, I didn't do it for the right reason. Maybe I went to the altar because everybody else did. Remember those moments? Got baptized because that's what we were supposed to do. There came a moment where it had to be real to me. And I had to repent and let go of something. The last piece of that is there was a fear and awe and reverence of a God who's made a commitment to me. He's just waiting on me to sign that dotted line. That's what the altar represents today. And in that place, to those people in Athens, Paul's like, You're this close. You're closer than you think. You've almost got it figured out. Your awe and reverence for the gods is there, your humility to all of them is there. But when you know him, it changes your heart. You'll realize that these buildings, these altars, all this are not the access points from heaven to earth, but you are. And your posture of an altar moment positions you to get closer to him. So, the people around you can experience this loving Father who gives grace and mercy, who longs to be in commitment to them. That's the purpose of an altar. I want to leave you today as we go. I want to challenge you this week. When's the last time you spent some time, whether at home? in a church, just in your life, in an altar place. Submission, sacrifice, humble, willing to see the things that have created remorse in your life you keep finding yourself stuck in. He's like, just let go of it. Why carry it? I want you to spend time that this week, thinking about that altar moment. Maybe your first time. You know, every once in a while, marriages after 10, 15, 25 years, they'll renew their vows. Maybe that's your altar moment this week. You spiritually go back to that place and re-consecrate your life and your purpose and your commitment, because it's important. It may not be for you, like Abram. It may be your grandson or granddaughter. It may be that co-worker. Maybe your kid. Maybe your spouse. Because of your commitment at an altar. Because your posture. You establish a place where God can meet somebody else. Father, we thank you today for your continual invitation into growing. Pray that you challenge our heart to follow you closer and closer every day so that we can impact this world around us. Father, I pray that we would find ourselves in that ultra posture this week, Maybe for a refreshing, for direction, or just a confirmation of where we're at as we spend time with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go.